Welcome, everybody, to episode 12 of the Fire Nuggets podcast. Uh, today is October 26th. It's the first game of the World Series, and we're psyched to have Brian Lynch as our guest tonight. And the goals here are always the same. They're simple, and we're going to bring in great guests and try to mine as much gold as possible as possible from them in about 30 to 40 minutes, short, sweet, and deep. Uh, unfortunately, I'm here by myself tonight. This is Nick. Uh, Joey and Jeff couldn't be here tonight, so I'm going to do my best to, uh, to not drop the ball. So how are you doing tonight, Brian? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing real, man. Real one. Excuse me. Real well, man. Uh, it's like to have you on here. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. All right. For those that don't know, uh, Brian is an LT at Springs, um, and he's been in Colorado Springs for the past how long? Um, this February will be 20 years with Colorado Springs Fire Department. Perfect. So you've been in the job for, for over 20 years, like 24 years total now. You, you worked for a smaller department prior to, to getting out with the Springs? Yeah, I started with the uh, Stratmore Hills Fire Department, which is uh, just south of Colorado Springs, just north of Fort Carson, kind of nestled in between the uh, the two there. Started there as a, a volunteer firefighter and then um, was a paid firefighter there for a few years before I uh, I was hired with uh, Colorado Springs in 2002. Okay, so the obligatory question is, is what got you into the job? <laughs> um, uh, truthfully, golf, actually. Uh, a uh, buddy of mine that I went to high school with, Jamie Gutchick, who's on the job with me, he, uh, he and I both uh, came on the, the fire academy together and um, uh, he and I were playing golf and um, I uh, fire engine rolled by and uh, he and I both said, man, that'd be kind of cool to go right along with those guys, see what they do. It seemed like that was kind of fun, you know, watching them go by and um, we finished our golf game and then, I don't know, man, it was sometime later we ended up doing a ride along and I rode with, uh, uh, I, the dad of a uh, guy we went to high school with and they were just, the crew was just so cool to me and they were just cool to hang out with all day. And they showed me all the, a uh, lot of the equipment and, you know, took me through the, uh, the entire like process of the day. Just, I, I was just, I, you know, was with them for a full shift and, um, we ended up having a little garage fire, which I thought was pretty cool, you know, and I was like, uh, I don't know, 18 or 19 years old, but, uh, a young man, but, um, when it was like 10 o'clock at night, I was getting ready to leave. And, uh, one of the guys said, Hey man, you want to, you want to just stay the night and work a 24 hour shift with us? So I said, okay, sure. And, um, I did. And I walked out of the firehouse the next morning and, um, I, uh, was like, well, that's, that's probably what I'm going to do with my life right there. That was pretty cool. So I also had a little bit of influence probably when I was, uh, when I was younger, I was, um, I was, you know, when my, uh, my mom, uh, went back to school, got a master's degree and my, uh, uh, my grandparents would watch me, you know, and I was like preschool age and my grandpa would always walk me by this fire station, uh, on the way to his house. It was on the way back to his house. And I always wanted to stop. And so he would stop every day and, uh, those guys would entertain me. And it was always kind of in my blood, uh, being a firefighter. I just, I was always had an interest in it, I guess. So here I am. <laughs> I like how you were playing around a golf and, and all those steps that came afterwards led to, to being where you're at right now. Do you still yeah. play golf? Um, not well. Nah. <laughs> no, I'm, not... I'm horrible at it. It's a fun sport though. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll go out and, and do it, but it's not like, it's nothing to write home about. <laughs> That's right. I used to get frustrated because I, I had two brothers and they were both really good golfers. Yeah. Um, and I was horrible. And I used to get really frustrated because they were just crushing it. And I was lucky if I broke a hundred, 
And then one day I was like, screw it. I'm going to have more fun than these guys. I'm going to drive the cart faster. I'm going to have more beers in them. I'm going to have more fun. And as soon as I made that little switch in my, in my head, golf was a lot more of a, uh, a lot funner sport. Yeah. As it should be. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's expensive enough. You might as well have fun when you're doing it. Oh yeah. I mean, I used to actually be a bellman at the, uh, at the Broadmoor golf club here in color Springs. I was like one of my first post, uh, post-college jobs or while I was, while I was in college. I think I, I started a, the summer after my freshman year in college. And then I, um, I, uh, I think Mondays were employee days. And so we got to get out and golf for free on, you know, some of the nicest golf courses in the, in the country, but I don't think I really appreciated it at the time. Yeah. It's a sweet golf course. I like that bellhop Brian. That's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So the first time that I met you, uh, for our, for our listeners, I grew up, uh, in the fire service. I, I, I started the first, my, the beginning part of my career in a small town, just South of the Springs. So a little suburb of Colorado Springs. And I, I, ex- I clearly remember when I went to my first irons and ladders class. Um, I think it was in Stratmore Hills. Um, and it had to be probably 2008, give or take. Um, and I remember prior to this, I, w- I was slightly inbred. Um, everything that I had, had known in the fire service was all at my small department. And then I went to to our neighboring department and then these neighboring firefighters, you, Brian and, and Nick were teaching a class on forcible entry and it blew my mind. And, and my progression up to that point in the fire service was, it was kind of a slow slope, but it was linear. And then I remember taking that class and, and just opening my mind up to the, the breadth and depth of the fire service and realizing that, hey, there's guys that are like five miles away from you that are absolutely crushing this. And I remember there was like a step function up in, in my motivation and my desire to be better at this job. So first of all, thank you for that. Um, I don't think I've ever told you that before, but it's, it's one of the, the handful of, of times in my life where it's changed my outlook on the job, just going to that first irons and ladders class. Um, well, I would say, us- uh, I would say more thank you because, um, you know, I, one of the things that we always tell our, our trainees that when we go and do our trainee academy is like, you know, you can choose to take this information or not, you know, I mean, you can, you can go your whole career and maybe not ever use it or, or care about it, but it's people who take it and say, well, I'm going to make a difference. And I'm going to, I'm going to number one, be not only proficient, but, but good at this job and do those skills. There's those, that, those are the people who, who create the, the continuity and the longevity um, in, in a skill and in a culture and an organization, you know? So I, I mean, you say, thank you, but I would say, thank you. You're the one that, that, you know, took it on and took it back to, to your organization, took it to your fire department now. And, and we have a lot of stories like that with other departments where they just changed the way they, they kind of operated, you know, because with forced entry because of it. So yeah. And for me, it was absolutely focused around forcible entry, but it was so much bigger. It was realizing like, Hey, these guys are like elite and they're, you know, we could eat at the same restaurant today. I could run into these guys anywhere. And I was like, if these guys can, can do it, I can sure as hell at least try to get uh, better at the job. Because I think too often we're, we're kind of stuck in these ruts with everybody around you is doing the same thing they've done for the past 20 years it's very hard to see any growth. Um, and, and I would advocate, and I know we're preaching to the choir with all our listeners here, 
if you just kind of look up and look out from your organization, even if your organization is amazing, if you go to, to guys five miles away, 10 miles away, 500 miles away, it doesn't matter. But if you see, if you can go to conferences, go to classes, learn from people, go to podcasts, read articles. Uh, and what's awesome is that it's, it's 2021 right now and the world is incredibly small. And you can literally talk to somebody in Sweden who just got back from a fire and made a rescue as they're driving back to the station. I mean, that's how connected we are right now. So I would just advocate for, for any department, make sure that you're looking up and looking out um, because I think what you gain is, is or, or possibly what you have to gain is worth way more than the sum of the parts. Yeah, I would, I'd say it's a, a sage advice. Uh, very, uh, very straight to the point. So how long, how long ago did you guys start Irons and Ladders? So Irons and Ladders started um, uh, probably about 2009 um, is kind of when I'm, I'm 2008 or 2009. Um, and it started, <coughs> excuse me, it started uh, really because, uh, you know, if, if you've been to an Irons and Ladders class before for anybody who's been to one, and I always start this with, you know, Ryan Royal tells this story uh, very, very well because he it's about him. It was him. You know, he was the firefighter that that um, was on this truck company. But uh, the, the long and short of it is that uh, we started Irons and Ladders or, or Irons and Ladders started. We never sat or we never uh, uh, set out to teach. I never sought to be an instructor in the fire service. I was very content just being um, me in the fire service and not really uh, doing anything other than coming to work and, you know, kind of learning, going to conferences and whatnot, but I didn't have any desire uh, to do that. And neither did Ryan and neither did Nick. And, and, uh, we had a fire in our city where we had a failure of, uh, that, you know, you can never, uh, really look at it and say like, well, um, you know, my fire department, um, failed that day terribly, right? Um, or nobody wants to do that, rather. But I think there's times when you actually have to look at it that way. And then really, that's what happened to us. We had a failure on a fire. Uh, some guys, senior guys could not get through a door uh, to a single residential Kia Knobloch and a deadbolt. Uh, they were kicking and, and, and mule chopping at the door or mule kicking and chopping at the door and trying to get in. And after, you know, 10 minutes or so outside on the outside of this building, um, when the first truck company arrives uh, uh, and Ryan's making his way across the front front yard, they finally get this door kicked open. And lo and behold, inside the, the threshold there is uh, uh, an elderly woman. Uh, they drag her out, do, you know, have resuscitative efforts on her and uh, she ends up passing away. And, um, and I always like this saying, like, you can never say, like, well, our fire department directly killed that woman today, right? There's a million different things that we have no idea. Um, but I can tell you right now that um, we, we sure as hell didn't give her her best chance, right? Uh, we, we didn't rise to the occasion. And so um, after that, it really caused, really, it caused Ryan and Nick to have this reflex to say, man, do we know everything we think we know about, about forcible entry? And, um, you know, they dug into it. Uh, pretty, pretty significantly. Um, and uh, I, I was working at a different, I was, they were working at station eight at the time I was working at uh, station 10. Um, they, uh, they uh, were fortunate and nice enough to bring me along on it. Just said, Hey, we, we want to, 
kind of do this and spread this around the, you know, our battalion at the time. And then it went from our battalion to where we started doing forceful entry classes to um, the best thing we ever did was we went to the, went to the training Academy, the, the fire Academy. And that started in like 2000, like I said, nine or so. Um, so, you know, you're looking at 12, almost 13 years of classes for our, our firefighters who that's the standard now. Uh, and then that standard of, you know, being able to size up a door, read a door, uh, be able to identify primary lock and, and secondary locks and know how to attack and defeat it. And, um, you know, the, the kind of the amazing thing is it grew from once our battalion started to do it, you'd see other battalions that in other stations be like, Hey, bring your, bring your door prop over. And so we did. And, um, <clears throat> then it, it really expanded from, you know, probably when kind of about the time you took one of our classes, uh, cause our, our first classes were at Stratmore Hills, uh, at the time, Ian Bruznick was the fire chief down there. Um, and, uh, he was, uh, more than, more than happy to host us and bring us in. And so, um, you know, we did probably three or four classes there to begin with. And that's probably about the time, like other people started saying, Hey, bring this to our department. And so honestly, irons and ladders started you know, I, I don't want to say accidentally, but by, for lack of a better term, you know, none of us ever sought to, to, to be, I never sought to be in this position. Um, and um, to me, it was really more about the process than it was about, you know, the process and the people than it was about, you know, being the instructor or whatever. Cause I think all too often people are, you know, they're instructors, but um I don't know that everyone has a, a, a real grasp on what they're teaching, you know, or they feel like they have to teach everything. So that's why we just kind of stay in our lane. I think do our thing. Yeah. I can appreciate the two things there that you said that, that I appreciate uh, the stay in your lane thing. Um, I've heard you say that and write that many times before. And I always appreciate that. And then when you said, you know, it seems like it's, you, you could miss this in passing, but you said you were more interested in the process. Um, I, I've had some conversations recently with some, some brothers and sisters, much smarter than I'll ever be, um, just about, you know, should we focus on the product or the process? And it's almost universal when, when we start defining these terms that people are focused on the process. Um, and I think that's a, a, a solid starting spot for, for almost any decision that you're going to make in this job. Yeah. I mean, I, and it really, that actually spurned you know, I guess us to look and say like, man, do we, do we, do we know everything we know about forcible entry? Well, we got all these acquired structures and buildings and, and built these props. And then it was, well, do we know everything we need to know about ladders? You know, do we know everything we need to know about ventilation? And, and then it, and it went really, um, I mean, it really kind of was just sort of a, you know, the domino, the domino fell and started knocking over a bunch of other things. And, you know, to be honest with you, what I realized is like, I probably thought I was a pretty good firefighter. Uh, but I probably wasn't that good of a firefighter, you know, and I always tell my firefighters now, the people that I work with, like you're 10 times better, you're starting, you know, you know, a mile and a half ahead uh, down the road than I was starting when I was in your position. Um, and, I, you know, sometimes they just kind of look at me like, you know, <laughs> like they don't really understand it, but it's, it's, I don't have any frame of reference to bring them back to say like we were, I was never taught forceful entry in my fire academy other than the IFSTA bookman thing. I was never taught anything. So I just had to figure it out, you know. I don't know. It, it would be like being somewhere in the Pacific Northwest and 
your engine company class when you're going through fire one and fire two, or you're, you get on your department and going through their academy is taught by Fields and Bonifield yeah. and, and all these amazing engine company instructors. And, and they don't necessarily appreciate it because that's just all they've ever known. But then if you put them and you go through, you know, uh, an IFSAC fire one class and you're like, oh, now yeah. I, now I understand it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just circling back to that, that fire that kind of prompted all this, that kind of that spark that, that lit the fire. Um, was there anything funky about that door? Any funky locks, uh, secondary locks, anything funky about the, the door or, or anything? It was locked. <laughs> I mean, that's the extent of it. It was a yeah. key lock and it was a deadbolt. Um, you know, the, the funny thing is, is, is we just had a, a lieutenant retire from our fire department. He was the first new lieutenant on that fire. Um, and he was uh, probably at the time, he was a 20 year, 20 year veteran. Um, he had been a lieutenant the entire time I had been on the job. Um, and he was somebody who, um, you know, I look up to and, and, and I still do look up to. He's a great guy, Fred Varnell. Um, just just retired after I think 30, 30 years of uh, of service to the city, right? Um, and you know a thirty year guy, um, or even at the time like a twenty year guy, turning around and saying, ah, oh, you know what, things happen, right? We can shrug that off and whatever. But he really um, he took it to heart. Like he 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 really was like, man, we failed that day. And he was kind of the maybe the the biggest champion for that uh, for us. Uh, as an organizationally to kind of rebound uh, and say like, well, maybe we need to start to invest and look at other things and look at the way that we're operating, which I always appreciated about guys like him. And I always, that was one of those lessons I would always chalk up to, well, when I'm a boss, when I'm a Lieutenant, then I'm going to be, that's a, that's an easy, easy lesson as a boss, right. To look at and go, well, there's the guy that's, you know, people look up to, makes good decisions on the fire ground, a really great uh, aggressive engine company officer. Um, but here he is going, oh yeah, here we failed over here, you know. That 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 ownership takes moral courage, and it sounds so easy to say, yeah. but it's a lot harder to practice than it than it ever is in 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 speaking. Sure. Yeah. Um, so INL Irons and Ladders has classes on forcible entry, ground ladders, coordination. You kind of uh, at, at least touched on, on the, the impetus for the first class, but how do you guys choose your topics, your class topics? And are you guys working on any new classes? <laughs> um, so we, uh, you know, I mean, obviously uh, forcible entry kind of the, it's, it's uh, uh, speaks for itself, how it kind of came about. Um, the ground ladders class was, um, again, we did a, we, we just had that sort of uh, introspective analysis and are we really as good as we think we are and started to really look at, you know, laddering on the fire ground and should it be, you know, what are the priorities, what ladders reach where, and then it just kind of spread the same way uh, forcible entry did. Um, you know, we do a ventilation class, uh, uh, Ian and I do, Ian Bruznick and I do a ventilation class on um uh, it basically just kind of a, a deciding, determining what kind of ventilation you're going to use, um, you know, and that goes, that really kind of spurned, I think, our discussion uh, between he and I, our discussion with about ventilation, because he and I used to uh, used to sit around and, and we would talk for hours about ventilation and fire attack and search and whatnot. And that kind of morphed into our, our first five minutes class that um, we do. And then um, we're actually going to roll out a, a class. Uh, at the uh, where we're talking about doing it at the um, 
2022 mile high fire cat or mile high uh, conference firefighters conference that it's a csf or the uh, csfd sorry an irons and ladders truck academy um and it's something that we've always kind of wanted to do is take every truck discipline break them down and um have them focus on uh, you know a few hours on search a few hours on vent a few hours on on um forcible entry and, and masking up you know with your gloves on or or the kind of reducing that reflex time from alarm until we're able to start to to intervene and so um, we've been working on that for uh the last uh last few months and it's um the last month or so really and it's it's coming together nicely it's going to be a good good little deal something we wanted to do for for a really long time so is that going to be a one day or two day class or, or both? Uh, it's going to be a one day class. Um, you know, I, I like the two day classes uh, to a certain extent, but I also really like the, I like the one day class, especially with those conferences, because um, you know, with one day you can come and kind of come in and, and get some truck stuff and it doesn't commit someone to saying, well, I got to go to this irons and ladders class for two days um, where they can go out and go, you know what, I'm going to go do, um, you know, brothers in battle beyond the pre-connect, uh, whatever, or I'm going to go do, um, you know, I, I don't think nozzle Ford does a one day class, but, um, uh, you know, it, whatever they want to do, Hey, I want to do, I've just got assigned to my rescue company and I want to go do an elevator rescue class. It doesn't commit them to, uh, doing just two days and have, making them choose that. I think that's a little, not unfair, but, um, I, I just, you know, when I go to these conferences, I want to, I want to you know, absorb as much as I can. So. Yeah, I can appreciate that. A little more flexibility for all the students to be like, well, I can take an engine class and a truck class this yeah. weekend or, you know, whatever other discipline they want to do. Or if they can only do one day because they're on shift or something, it doesn't, doesn't inhibit them, you know. You are also uh, a technical panel member for ULFSRI's size up and search study. Yeah. Um, how's this experience been for you so far? And, and have you learned anything yet? Uh, I've learned, uh, so much from, um, <laughs> those guys just being in the same room with, uh, you know, just being selected, first of all, is humbling. I mean, it really is, uh, you know, I was in, in Portland and, um, I had no idea I'd been selected, but I did three or four guys coming up to me and they're like, Hey man, congrats. And I'm like, Hey man, thanks. You know, <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? You're finally about the third one. Um, I, I don't remember who, who it was, was like, yeah, you're on the panel. And I said, oh, and then I looked and, and started, got my email, whatever. So um, it was very, very humbling to be selected. Um, it's cool because there's another firefighter on my job that's on it. He was on the um, Chris Byrne. He's a, a firefighter at fire station. He's on a different shift on, on C shift, but he is a, um, he was on the uh, coordinated fire tech uh, panel. Uh, and, uh, he is, he's been doing some work with UL. He's, uh, there's a video, some, uh, other stuff coming out that he's been doing. And so it was pretty cool being on that panel with him. Um, because I don't know, we just have the ability to, to, to talk about how we can Im implement it in our own organization. Um, we did the, did the initial meeting, uh, almost three years ago and then, uh, you know, COVID happened and that unfortunately really, um, really slowed down the 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 process it seemed like uh and uh we did the burns about a year ago 
Uh, and there's some guys, uh, you know, on the panel, myself included, like I, I could never make it out for the burns. I could never, I was never able to go out to the, to the site and watch the burns, but I'll say like, if I'm going to miss one thing out of all of that, that's, I'm fine not being there for the actual house on fire. You know, I want to be there for the discussion at the beginning and then the discussion at the end, uh, to start to, um, look at some of the tactical considerations and, um, really, uh, you know, I can't say too much about it because, uh, you know, UL's pretty, uh, we want to, I, I, I respect the scientific process and, and I, what I, um, I really respect, uh, respect, uh, you know, Kerber, uh, Steve Kerber and you know, Don Majikowski, um, Craig, Keith, those guys, and then everybody there who has the, the patience really to look at the big picture and to not get too excited about one little piece of information and data. Um, and they do a really good job. It was just really sitting in the room. It was just, um, it was so, I guess the word I would use would be overwhelmingly professional to watch these guys sit in a room and talk about how to break down the data and how we can understand the, how, how this little piece fits in, into the process as a whole. Um, and then how that can start to shape you know, organizational change and industry change in the fire service and, and, or how it can um, really, you know, confirm that some of the things that we're doing are, are good. They're right that we should be doing that. You know, our, our, our anecdotal experience has been, um, you know, maybe confirmed by scientific experience uh, experiments. So, um, you know, in terms of the stuff we specifically learned that data is still being kind of analyzed and processed, but um it's um it is very it's very cool so it's 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 very cool there's a lot of good stuff where are you guys at in this process are we look do you have a rough idea for a timeline is is the end of the year kind of still what you're aiming for before some of this gets released or is has covid pushed that back and i would unknown? i would guess that we'll probably be like um winterish like uh probably after the first of the year i would guess is when we would meet again and then um I would assume that um, maybe a year from now, maybe a little bit less is when it'll be out. But to be honest with you, I don't know. I mean, it, I don't, you know, being, being the first time in this process, um, uh, it's, it's hard because, you know, it's hard because you and I are used to getting immediate information and, and starting to, you know, you know, solve problems immediately or doing what, do whatever, do whatever we're, we're having to do. And, and, um, with this, there's a lot of basically uh, teaching me patience and, you know, we get out there, we do the, the, they decide on what the experiments are going to be and um, what we're going to look for and the importance of why we're looking for what we're looking for and, you know, shut doors, open doors, search, you know, from a window, search from a door and, uh, and then um, we set up the experiments and do it. And then you think, well, all the data should be in now it's in a computer, you know, <laughs> and, and in reality, it's like, it's going to take a year to sit down, break it down, analyze it, and then say, here's what happens when you do this, you know, scientifically speaking. And so, um, I, I would say it'll probably be about a, about a year. We're probably within a year. Um, it should be out. So that's a very long answer to your very direct short question. So no, that's nice. I, as, as many know, I might be a zealot when it comes to search. So I've yeah. been frothing at the mouth for, for a little while for this. So at least having a, a rough idea for a timeline helps, helps kind of calm me down. And honestly, it may, it may happen sooner. And, 
you know, I talked to like with Chris, he was on the panel before he said, it's like, you know, these periods of nothing happening and then a flurry of information we, we look at. So it's, it's, you know, kind of hurry up and wait. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It sounds familiar. So kind of along the same vein, um, and, and a lot of this just because it comes from some of the data that UL FSRI has put out, um, and, and they were very kind of mindful of, of kind of the process. We're going to start with, mm-hmm. with air, and then even within air, we're going to talk about horizontal, and then we're going to talk about vertical, and then we're going to talk about positive pressure, and then we're going to start talking about water, and then we're going to start talking about water from exterior interior. Then we're going to talk about coordination. Then we're going to talk about search. Um, but over the past decade or so, there's been a lot of talk about coordinating ventilation and attack. But sometimes it seems like search and rescue is kind of often forgotten. Can you speak to how search fits into coordinated fire ground operations? Yeah, I mean, I know that's a broad question. No, it, it is, but the, it's the overwhelmingly the most important question. You know, I mean, I, I would say that like if you ask if you ask folks like what's the the you know. Uh, the most, if you could only do, it's like three things. I always start our, our uh, first five minutes class by saying, if you could only do three things on the fire ground, what would you do? Well, you'd put the fire out, you'd search the building, get people out and you ventilate the building and get all the smoke and the heat out, save as much property as you can, right? If you could only do two things, what would you do? Well, you'd attack it and you would, you would search it and get people out, right? And I always break it down and say, what would you do if you could only do one thing on the fire ground? It all came down to just generally speaking, if you could only do one thing at every single fire and, and, you know, that, that was the, I mean, obviously a very outlandish and unrealistic scenario, but if it, if you broke it down that way, for me, I would make sure everybody was out of that building. Right. Um, And I, I think that that was really the focus going into you know, from my perspective with, with coordination and especially with this UL study was looking at it from the perspective of, you know, that's, you know, f- uh, uh, searches like the most important thing we're doing on the fire ground. My house was on fire. I wouldn't be like, oh man, I can't believe you guys didn't <clears throat> save my television, you know, or, or, you know, I mean, I, we, we're, we're worried about the people who are inside that building and we're worried about, you know, obviously protecting the contents, but that's so secondary to the people who are in there. So even our hose line operation, what do we always say about where you put a hose line, right? Between the people who are in there and the fire. Well, that in and of itself, that statement right there tells me that the most important thing, that the reason we're going to structure fires, to building fires is, you know, and this is not my line. I, the first time I heard this, I, I swear I was going to steal it from Aaron Fields, but he's like, you know, the, the, you know, we, we don't go to fires in buildings because the building's on fire. We go because there's people in the building that's on fire, right? A paraphrase a little bit, but it's overwhelmingly absolutely true that our coordination on the fire ground has got to be focused on creating tenable survivable space inside that building with our hose line, maybe redirecting flow inside that building with ventilation and occupying that building with uh, firefighters to either find people and isolate them and put them in a bedroom and uh, get them out of harm's way, harm's way or get them out of the building, right? So I, I look at coordination is that co- coordination of fire attack and, and ventilation. Oftentimes we think about it from the perspective of, 
we ventilate first and then, you know, that air entrainment is going to increase the heat release rate inside the building, which is, you know, just the fire getting bigger and faster and um, which is certainly true, but those, the fire attack and, and uh, ventilation, the coordination of those, the focal point of that is search, right? Because what I really don't want to do is mess up the inside of that building. So we can't search it or we take space that's tenable, uh, survivable and searchable for us as firefighters and we turn it into um, an area that's maybe uh, untenable or unsurvivable and um, maybe even not searchable for us, right? So the focal point of coordination has got to be occupying that building. That's the whole reason that we're doing it. So when you guys add water, say say you, you're on truck eight still, is that right? Uh, I work on, on engine eight and truck eight. I, so I, we, I split shifts, every other shift. Okay. All right, let's say you're, out, you're riding truck that day. Engine gets water on the fire. Does anything change with your search as soon as you hear water on the fire or conditions are getting better? Hundred um, percent. Does anything change about either how you search or where you search or or anything else? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I you know that's one of the the um, I I pride myself on not being a micromanager. I don't tell my guys how to do their job. They know how to do their job. They prove it to me all the time. And one of the only expectation that I've given my nozzleman was put the fire out. You know, and and the quick direct route. You know, and you know it, my nozzleman's Kent Smith. He's uh, dialed in. Uh, without question, the best nozzleman on the job uh, makes good decisions. So I don't have to worry about that. But I said, the only expectation I have for you, the, the one thing I'll demand of you is uh, every, uh, when you knock down that fire and you've put it out, you get, you make the fire room. I need you to broadcast that. And um, I want you to say command in all companies. So everybody on the fire ground, you know, perks up and listens and goes, Oh, I've got, they've got water on the fire. It's not so commander, our dispatcher can benchmark it. I don't really care what time we say we have water on the fire. The quicker, the better. That's great. But I don't care what time they, the, the dispatcher timestamps it. I want to do it. So if I'm searching above the fire or I'm searching beyond where that hose line was, and I know that, Hey, he's knocked down the fire. Well, that might, that's going to trigger me to maybe say, Hey, you know what, Nick, you and I are working it together today. Um, you're the, uh, you're the irons man. And I'm the, you, you know, we're the irons team. You go search that room. I'm going to search this room. We got the fire knocked down. So we don't have to. So kind of split at that point, get a little loose. Yeah. Split search, whatever, as to where maybe we would be or more oriented before potentially. I mean, all of this stuff is so, you know, uh, circumstantial and situational, but um, it definitely changes it. You know, the one thing I'll say is like, we're not always disciplined about doing that on the radio. Um, uh, not, I'm as a fire service in general, right? Yeah. Uh, but you know, there's certain signs when you're inside of a building and you start to know you're like, oh, they're getting water on the fire. You, know, you start to wipe your mask more because you can't. You know, it's a little bit more difficult to see. Get that condensation built up on your mask, makes it easier for you to kind of recognize and say, oh, they're 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 flowing in here, right? You, you, you kind of glossed over something that, that to me was something that I hadn't heard before, but it, but it makes a lot of sense. When, when you were telling, uh, I think his name was Ken, Ken, when you get water on that fire, mm -hmm. say command and all companies. Yeah. So typically, are you just talking to command? But when you say something that you want everybody to hear, do you just add that and all companies in there? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I, you know, we kind of have that in our department, we have and every department is different, you know, we've obviously got a mayday. Um, and then we got emergency traffic, which is for really, you know, specific, important information. Um, and then there's that command in all companies, if I want everybody to per perk up and listen, 
like oftentimes, you know, if you hear you're on engine eight and you hear truck eight talking to engine seven or, you know, you just don't, you kind of tune it out. It's, it's background, you know, white radio noise on, on the fire ground. But if you say, Hey, command all companies, uh, here's a message I'm about to tell you, then that tends to uh, be heard by everyone acknowledged and also repeated. You know, like I know uh, uh, my chief now, and I know a lot of our, um, a lot of our chiefs, they'll repeat that, you know, all right, all companies from uh, engine eight has knocked down the fire, fire, you know, fire knocked down or fire out. Right. Um, so I, I like the, uh, the command in all companies because it gets a, it gets a, uh, I don't know, it just gets attention and emergency traffic to me is a little bit more pressing, you know. Yeah, I think I like that. Um, I've always had a problem being like like actively listening inside a fire ground, especially when I'm searched. I get very hyper focused on what I'm doing, and you know, auditory exclusion and and all yeah. the other ambient noises. I can go five minutes without hearing anything over the radio. So I know this is one of my issues, uh, but maybe this might help uh, if there's any other idiots kind of like myself out there that that sometimes have a really hard time listening. All I'm looking for, all I'm listening for is water on the fire when I'm searched, because that kind of the same thing you said, you know, I can get a little bit loose at this point in time um, and conditions are going to override all this, but let's just assume that conditions are keeping us tight. But I, anything that I can do to make myself hopefully hear that sooner and not miss it. So I like repeating it. And I like that just, you know, the simple, like add three words in there and all companies. Uh, that's, I might try to steal that and, and push that up our chain here. Yeah. I mean, you know, to me, I look at it like it, it's also beneficial because if, you know, you know, Nozzleman gets to the fire room and he starts knocking it down and he broadcasts that, well, then everybody else in the fire ground is going to maybe, even if it's, if it's, you know, subconsciously, they're going to evaluate that building and you're going to evaluate those conditions to go, yeah, it does feel like that. Right. The, what the expectation that I'm hearing from him saying, Hey, fire's knocked down to this is I'm, I'm, I feel that I feel like the fire's knocked down, like the, the conditions inside, or you're like, yeah, dude, you're wrong. <laughs> this there, there's very clearly it's way too hot to, for you to have knocked down the fire, <laughs> whatever, you know, but that's yeah. all good information for, for everybody on the fire ground. Yeah. For, well said. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to try, I'm going to, I'm going to steal that and see if I can't push that up our chain and, and see what the, the, the people with, with more power think. It's nothing official, like in our department, it has no, like it's, it's not in our, our tech ops or our policy, but um, you know, it's something that like, you know, I said, I've, I've heard a few other people start to say it and it's something that just kind of has caught on a little bit. Um, and I don't know, it's kind of spread a little bit maybe. Yeah. It, it's sometimes it's like simple things that, that yeah. can potentially have you know, these tipping uh, you know, a couple little words here and there and they might tip, how how operations go so uh, i'm always on the lookout for for something simple that that we can pick up on and and, and potentially steal from other companies that are doing it uh yeah. you know potentially better than us um so kind of along the same kind of tactical route or potentially tactical you're yeah. the author of some white papers um on on building construction and collapse can you tell us a little bit about those and then and then also kind of what prompted you to write those um yeah i mean they're um uh, well, James Johnson will, will probably, um, berate me for, for, uh, not updating it in the last, cause he's been, um, about annually asking me when I'm going to update it. Um, and cause it, <laughs> calm it, down, James. Yeah. 
it's like uh, it went, uh, I think it is 1994 uh, through 2014, as, uh, or 2013 rather. It was um, a 20 year time period. Uh, and really, I started to look at um, uh, th there's a phrase that gets said around the kitchen table of the fire firehouses, right? And you'll hear people say this. Um, and, you know, it used to be that like a guy could say anything. And, you know, there was really no way to check them, you know, um, mm -hmm. other than going into the library of the firehouse and grabbing the, you know, encyclopedias back in the day or whatever, right? But now all of a sudden we have the ability, we have all this information at our, at our fingertips. And so uh, really what happened to me was um, I, um, I was... Uh, we were sitting around the fire. So we had a fire where um, we had um, did a roof ventilation and there were some questions uh, on the roof ventilation as to why we did it. And, um, you know, kind of uh, the, the decision-making route. And um, one of the things that uh, kind of kept getting uh, pushed and that the phrase that I kept hearing was, uh, you know, the guys would say, I heard few people very specifically say, um, you know, hundreds of firefighters have died doing vertical ventilation. And it's the most dangerous thing you're going to do on the fire ground. Um, and I don't know why I'd heard that all before. And I just kind of, you know, subconsciously was like, yeah, I don't know if that doesn't seem right to me, but whatever, you know, it's just people just embellishing. And for whatever reason, it just kind of that one time that it was said to me, it just kind of tripped you know, tripped a little trigger in me. And I said, you know what, I'm going to go like, I'm going to go look this up. I'm going to, I'm going to throw down the, the, the BS card on somebody. And so I, I went, uh, <laughs> I went home the next day and uh, I fired up the old Google machine and I started trying to research um, firefighters and uh, firefighters and uh a vertical ventilation line of duty desks. And then I ventilate, you know, uh, roof fails uh, line of duty desks. And um, really what happened was I, I could get almost no data on it except for a few specific things, right? Um, I, I uh, titled uh, Firefighters and Roof Collapse, right? Um, and I, I Googled that. And I <clears throat> really, what ended up happening is, is what I found was, and now retrospectively looking back, there just aren't that many firefighters who died and vertically ventilating a building. So there isn't that much information about it out there. I mean, so what I ended up doing was I thought, you know, I wonder what the real data is. We're a data-driven world, right? My department is data-driven. We, we look at data, we use data to, to uh, you know, uh, uh, determine our responses, determine where we're gonna build fire stations and, and on and on. So I thought, well, let's look at this data. Let's, let's break it down. And so, um, I did. I thought it would probably take me, you know, an, a couple hours initially. Um, it ended up taking me about nine or eight, nine or 10 months before um, I had basically compiled all the data. And I went back to, I wanted to go back to 1990. Um, uh, but the problem with going back past 1994, so January of 1994, uh, if you look at the line of duty desk from the United States Fire Administration, they all are at the end of the annual report, 
they're all listed chronologically. Um, and so it was very easy to go back and look starting in 1994. Before that, they didn't do it. So it was, you, I mean, you had to, you had to almost specifically know of a, of a fire and of an instance where something happened to actually Google that and find information on it. So that's kind of why I only went back to 1994, got all that information and then started to put it together. Um, and honestly, I went into it going, well, this is either going to say that, yeah, vertical ventilation is scary, dangerous, and we shouldn't be doing it. Or it's going to say, uh, you know, there's, there's this small data point. And I hate to talk about dead firefighters as data points, right? Um, and I make mention of this at the beginning of those white papers. Anybody who's requested one from me, there's a, a title page that says that, you know. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, we cannot make decisions um, with, with when we're fearful of the consequences of the results, right? Because, um, because we're, we're operating under assumptions, right? I want to know, like, what, what are the odds, right? How do I operate on a roof? Um, what are the, what are the, what do the statistics say about, you know, firefighters dying? And honestly, it's very small. I think, you know, I go back and look, I think four, five firefighters in a 20 year period fell through the roof and, and died, uh, right? Um, and one of those was not vertically ventilated. One of them was trying to put out an attic fire. Um, and then I think uh, of the other four, uh, you know, and it's been a little bit since I've looked at this, but it's either two or, I think three of those firefighters were not wearing an SCBA. So as soon as they fell into that attic or fell into the, the fire compartment, I mean, they, you know, they had no shot because they weren't wearing their, their SCBA. And it's why I'm a proponent for wearing that when you get on the roof. You know, um, so really that was the impetus for it, but I didn't want to just stop there as I started looking at every type of, of building collapse and, and firefighter fatality and, and just to, to look at how often, you know, firefighters are really dying from, from, uh, you know, falling through the floor, falling through the roof, having things fall on top of them. And, and, um, because it makes a lot of sense. Uh, when you start to look at the data, it starts to help shape your decision making on the fire ground. How has this, the your, your white papers, your research, how has that changed the way you look at collapse, vertical ventilation? Um, and, and maybe a, a broader, maybe more important question is, is how should the fire service utilize this white paper? Um, well, James Johnson should update it. <laughs> That's what uh, my official... Uh, take, um, no, I mean, I think we need to, um, you know, look at it for what it is. It's a data piece that says here from this time period, um, this is what's happened. I, I know of no other line of duty death from the time that I began that or into the, that research the last year, I think was 2013 or 14. Um, that's the data is collected in there. I know of no other line of duty death of a firefighter vertically ventilating and falling through the roof. If you guys have fallen off of roofs and, and whatnot, and I know that there's a, you know, pretty prominent video of, a, um, I believe it was in Northern California of a, a firefighter falling through the roof. And I think that, Captain Dern. yeah, yeah. It cost him his career. I think, um, I don't know that to be a fact, but, um, I just, uh, I guess what I had heard and maybe assumed even, but, um, 
uh, I don't know of anybody else who's who's died doing that. But not to say that it can't be dangerous. If you don't know what you're doing, it, it will be. Just like going through the front door of a house fire. If you don't know what you're doing. If you don't have a plan and expectation, if you haven't thought about that and trained for that moment, it's that you're adding an element of danger to it that is um, within your control. You know, you can you can control all those things, and that's really kind of what what you know why I wanted to do that paper was I, I understood the importance of vertical ventilation and how it can help us, right? Um, not on every fire, uh, but on, you know, when it, when it's needed, right? It can overwhelmingly benefit. It could be a game changer on the fire ground to help us. So um, I wanted it to be a tool, you know, a tool for us to use for our truck companies to, to be able to use on my own department. And um, that was the easiest way to go about it is to bring that information forward to say, Okay, we can stop with the safety concerns because we have a way to, you know, kind of nullify that. Um, we can stop with the embellishment of the, you know, hundreds of firefighters have died from this. So let's look at how do we operate on a roof and how do we get our most bang for our buck? And how do we do it in a, uh, a systematic manner that's going to benefit the search and the fire attack? And to me, that's really when it kind of took off and made it, made it a little bit easier. I love how, you know, seven, eight years after you wrote this, I still see this being referenced every other month or so somewhere online, which I think is pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. It's kind of crazy to me to be honest. Cause I, you know, like I said, that was an internal document for my own organization. Um, you know, I, and I, and I started giving that out to guys like just to kind of spread it a little bit, maybe a little bit surreptitiously at first, um, you know, because um, I wasn't real, I wasn't trying to piss anybody off, you know, I wasn't trying to just, I wasn't trying to prove anybody wrong. And, and I told you so way I was more trying to prove people to people that, Hey, this is something we can do and we can utilize. And so um, it is interesting to me how it kind of spread from there and how people do reference it. Um, I also like just how it's 2021. The world is small, which we already talked about or potentially small. Um, and, and in certain ways we're, we're incredibly connected, but I like how we at least have the ability to when people are, saying something, we can throw the BS flag and say, well, let's do some research on this. And yeah. nine months later, which would have taken years, you know, uh, a generation ago to get uh, this. Never happened. If, yeah, if ever. And now we can figure out this information. So kudos to, to you for doing this and, and guys like Bill Carey that have come, um, come along and, and, and really looked at all those buckets because a lot of these LODs just get dropped in like four or five different buckets yeah. And then they go into each bucket and say, hold on, this isn't actually search. This was, or this wasn't adva actually advancing a hose line. This was actually this. Um, and so it's, it's nice when we have a little bit more accurate data. Um, well, anyway, it needs to pertain like, you know, every, everything needs context, but you know, it's like they have a, you know, I think that if you, the, the way I, way I would start this would, would say, you know, you've got, um, if a guy falls off the top of a fire truck um, and hits his head in the fire station and dies doing maintenance on the fire truck, a guy falls uh, through the roof of a burning building and he dies doing vertical ventilation, uh, and a guy falls um, down the hill at a wildland fire uh, and dies, his, though all three of those deaths are categorized as falls. And it's very sort of brand, uh, bland, generic way that, give, that provides no, us no information on how we can, uh, you know, 
the, the purpose of a report to me is to change behavior or to draw attention to potentially dangerous behavior that we hadn't, you know, didn't, didn't evaluate before, didn't, didn't uh, take notice of before. So of what value of it is it if it's so vague that we can't do anything with it? That's to me kind of what NIOSH reports are. I mean, there's some good stuff out there. Don't get me wrong, but oftentimes it's like, what? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and they're, they're made purposely vague. Um, which yeah. at times does a lot more harm uh, than good. Um, I get the the reason that sometimes there's there's the vagueness and it's nebulous, mm -hmm. um, but it, oftentimes it takes away from really what you want to say and what you want to get across with that document, or at least that's my take on it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, so I've been fortunate enough to, to to get to know you a little bit and had some discussions with you and sit in some of your classes in the past. And I know how important like decision making is to you. How do you as an individual work on making better decisions or training to make better decisions? How do you how do you go about doing that? Uh, well, part of it is routine, you know, um, like one of the things I always I feel like um, one of the things we do at the fire station every single morning, I'll tell you, I'll give you a little glimpse of my day. Um, I usually roll our shifts, shift changes by eight o'clock. I usually roll into the firehouse about um, at about uh, uh, you know seven uh, seven twenty five or seven thirty, and my crew is typically already out there drilling. Um, they usually get there early, uh, you know, before eight o'clock, obviously, and they get on the rig and they start to go through the go through some drills. And um, when when I get out onto the apparatus floor, um, they're usually. Uh, you know, kind of either mid mid drill or they do these time drills at the beginning of the, the beginning of the shift. And it's all about their routine um, and about making sure they're making good decisions at the back of the, the rig. The other day I was watching them and listening to them and they were doing a, a, a routine on um, ladder packages and quickly deploying ladder packages. Um, and they get to the back of the rig and they would say, you know, one of the other firefighters was saying like, hey, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's a garden level uh, center hallway apartment fire. Right, fires on the second floor, so you had to pick your ladders based off that when you went to the back. All those, all those small little micro decisions that we make uh, on the fire ground, and um, you know, for me, I'm never choosing ladders or choosing a nozzle or choosing really anything that, like in that regard, as a company officer. Um, but I think the the best routine that you can get into as no matter what you're doing as a decision maker on the fire ground, because every one of us is, is understand your routine and have a system and a, and a, a system to solve the problem and to, to quickly define what you're doing. Otherwise, you're just going to just do do what you think is right in that moment. And you're, you're basically hoping at that point. You know, the other thing, one of the things we do is we sit down as a crew at, at breakfast and we always put on uh, fire videos and it's usually focused around the new kid uh, you know the new the probationary firefighter and and having them answer questions about what they're seeing and how they would react to it but you know that's my time as a company officer when when they put that video up on the on the screen I look at that and say like all right instinctively what am I thinking of as a company officer inch and three quarter to the front door do I need to get a, a better look at the back side of the building uh, does it need a two and a half is it going to be vertical vent right away horizontal vent uh, are we going to um, uh, you know going to be able to search ahead of behind the hose line all those decisions that are that are on the fire ground that are going to be um, quite frankly, they're either going to make or break your, your success on the, on the, as a, 
as a firefighter, right? And doing whatever task that you're doing. Um, and so for me, that's my, my process is to constantly analyze the decisions that we make, uh, the decisions that other people make. And then uh, I think the best thing you can do for yourself is be your, be your hardest critic. Uh, don't be afraid to look at what you did on the fire ground, what you said on the radio, what you, um, a decision that you made, even if it's, if it's right, even if everybody thinks it's right, you know, just think like, okay, how, how could that have gone wrong? How, what would have changed? What one thing was there that, that would have potentially could have changed, um, that process to make my decision less effective or completely ineffective. Right. Um, so, you know, for, for me, I think that that's probably the most, one of the most important things that you could do that routine on a daily basis. And quite frankly, every time you have a real incident, one of the things I'll do is I order from our dispatch center, I will order um, the radio traffic and uh, tapes from our, whatever our incident channel was. Um, and I also like to order the 911 calls. Uh, part of it is just kind of to audit a little bit, like what are the 911 callers saying? to the call takers and what are the call takers giving the dispatchers? What are the dispatchers giving us? You know, what, what are the things? Cause there's been stuff on there before where like, you know, we've, they've missed things. I had one, you know, where it blatantly said like party person trapped on the top floor. Right. And that was never broadcast. And um, it's one of those where to me, that's kind of a deal breaker that needs to be, I mean, that, that's something that we definitely need to know, but um yeah, I like to just maybe do my own personal audit of those, <laughs> but in reality, I also like to listen to the command stuff, the, 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 my, my initial decisions, uh, on the fire ground and were they effective? Why weren't they effective? Was I clear? Was I clear once I got inside the building and, and, um, maybe I was a division uh, or assigned to a division, a group or, or whatever, or just operating inside the building. You know, I think that's the, the best way you can do it. You, you kind of touched on two things that, that you know, I'm sensing a theme here that we've talked about uh, already in this episode. Um, kind of that routine to me kind of seems like it's process centric, meaning that the best way to, to produce a good high quality product is to focus on the process, like what you do every single day. Um, and then you also talked again about kind of ownership and when you make mistakes, own that. And even when people think that, that you did something well, maybe look at it from every single angle and be like, you know what, maybe I could have done something better. Maybe I should have said this. So I, I, uh, I like that. Uh, the, seeing these threads kind of repeated, um, I think to me speaks to how important those things are to you. Yeah. I mean, honestly, um, that's kind of how you have to, I, I, I always like to look at people like, I, I always take this like Peyton Manning, um, you know, was, was, um, to me, just watching his routine, thinking about the, the injury, I was, I used this example and, and, you know, he had an injury and in, uh, when it was a 2010 or 11 or whatever that, you know, people thought like, Hey, this guy's never gonna, <clears throat> this guy's never going to play football again type thing. And then, and, you know, he goes and he works and he works and he works. And there's a documentary on his, um, his process and how he did what he did to get back to being, you know, really the quarterback that he was. And it was amazing to me. Like he did the same thing every day, the exact same thing every single day until he mastered it, until he got better and better and better and better until it was just second nature to him all over again, which 
you know, I think is something that, you know, obviously that, you know, he's a driven human being, but um, it was just a fascinating documentary to watch someone so driven, so motivated and so specific and, and almost calculated and cunning in his, his ability to just put himself, get himself from basically being, you know, unathletic because I can't throw a football 20 yards to doing what he did in his final years of his career, you know? I think that if, when you look at some of the greats, specifically in sports, but I think this there's mm-hmm. parallels in, in any other industry, to be honest. Yeah. But like, if you look at the Tom Brady's, the Peyton Manning's, the Michael Jordan's, the Steph Curry's, you know, put any other person that's going to be top 10 in their sport at all, of all time. There's these, these threads that are eerily similar between everybody. Yeah. And, and again, to me, it speaks to that process. Like every single day we're, we're, we're rising and grinding every single day, same thing every day, like yeah. Peyton Manning, uh, he's thrown a ball, I don't know, 3 million times at this point in his career. Yeah, I mean, a but lot. he's still out there every day doing it. Steph Curry has made, you know, just in games, I don't know, 3 million three-pointers, and he's still shooting 300 three-pointers a game and 200, or excuse me, a day, and, and 200 free throws. And he's the best shooter that's ever been, but he's still doing this every day like he was a junior in high school. Yeah, because there's a reason that he's the best shooter that there's ever been. You know, well said. to me, I look at it like that's the reason is because they continue to to do that. And I, and I, you know, it's a valuable lesson I learned when I was a, uh, you know, a young man. I didn't make the my my junior high basketball team. And my dad was, you know, I guess I'll say somewhat sympathetic, maybe. But he basically was like, sounds like you need to work harder. You know, sounds like you weren't one of the top 12 or 15 kids or whatever it was. Sounds like you need to bust your ass and work a little bit harder next year. You know, and um you know, that was good advice. Yeah. And honestly, it was kind of a life, a good life lesson to me because, you know, I went out for the basketball team the next year when I was in the eighth grade, I didn't make it there either. And again, he was kind of like, sorry to hear that work harder. That's all that's going to change this. Like you're not going to magically become better if, if you don't work harder. So, um, and it also taught me maybe a lesson about failing, you know, that, that you, in order to maybe really succeed, you, you absolutely have to understand your failures and why you failed. And I don't know. I just think it's a, it's a pretty easy process. Um, it's a pretty easy process to talk about, but it's, it's difficult to be dedicated to, I think. Well said. All the time. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's mm-hmm. really hard when you wake up and you're just not feeling it that day. Um, it's nice yeah. when you have that inertia when everybody else in your station, you know, it sounds like at least, everybody else at seven 30, they're already drilling or, or whatever time it is. Yeah. And so it's really easy if no one else is drilling to be like, ah, you know what, let's, let's see what the Broncos are doing today. Let's, let's yeah. watch this for a little bit. Let me tweak my, my fantasy football lineup or whatever it is. But when you see everybody else out there, because they have this kind of inertia where this is just the norm, it's a lot harder when everybody else is doing something to be like, ah, shit, I, maybe I should just go take a, go to the bathroom for 20 minutes and then I'll hide for a half hour. Then they'll be done. It's a lot harder when everybody else is doing that. Yeah. So it sounds like you guys got a a good culture there in your station. Yeah. I have an awesome crew. I really do. I mean, these guys make pretty amazing decisions on a daily basis. Every time they, I trust every one of them to make, they always make good decisions. They never, they never, um, you know, they never make a bad decision that, uh, you know, they won't, they won't be accountable for. 
you know, and, and honestly, they really don't. I mean, they just do, they just do excellent work. They always, you know, take care of patients and medical calls. They always, uh, I mean, they're, they bust their ass and hustle during fires and, um, they just, they set the standard and to me, the tone for our fire department, like, you know, we're, we're the crew is kind of the way I, I look at it. Now I know other company officers feel the same way and as they should, but, um, you know, that's coming to work to me has been, um, man, it's, it's, it's always fun. It's always fun to come to work and, and work with, with my crew and try and keep up with them a little bit. <laughs> All right. So we're going to take a step back um, okay. and go 30,000 foot on this. All so right. if you had a crystal ball and you could see into the future, what would fire service training and learning look like in 10, 20 years, 30 years? Would there be any differences for what we see now? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I bet you it's, I mean, I don't know if it's going to be light years. I just don't know what next, what's going to get invented next, you know, that would to, to allow us to, cause you know, something like this, like, you know, us even doing a podcast here and um, talking about, about this stuff, you know, 15 years ago is unheard of. Right. And we never would have, you know, but now, like you said, you know, you can, you can be coming back from a fire and I can FaceTime you and go, Hey man, tell me all about this. And you go here, let me send you a first two video. Here's my helmet. I mean, you can have, we can have so much information in such a, such a compressed time, uh, time frame that, um, I think that that is going to start to drive the drive training a little bit in the fire service. I think that our, I think it already has, it's impacted and it's starting to change the culture and the shape of the fire service. You know, I mean, I think that there's a, when I look at it and if I say in 10 years, what do I think it'll look like, man, I think it's going to look like a lot of what it looks like now, but probably enhanced a little bit. Um, I think we're going to have a clear understanding um, of some of the scientific information that we've been given. Um, I think we're going to have a lot of tactics that are focused and based off of that. Like we already do, like look at the firefighter rescue survey, right? <clears throat> and if I ask, um, if I ask any one of our, anybody in my firehouse right now, right? Or if I go, uh, to, uh, Ian uh, Bruzik and I are going to uh, teaching our recruits the first five minutes class for our recruits next uh, next week. And I always, we always emphasize that, that uh, have a whole section on that firefighter rescue survey because that has shaped and, and focused our, uh, our attention on where we need to be focusing and where we need to be searching. You know, Emily Smith and I just wrote a search procedure for our entire organization that's, you know, largely um, uh, based off on the, the occupancy and, and the building, but it's almost solely focused on uh, where people are statistically found in a building. Does me no good to search the dining room right off the bat because, man, that's a that's a not a winning lottery ticket, <laughs> you know. Uh, but if I ask any of my, one of my recruits where fifty percent of people found in a in a building fire that we that we get out whether they live or die, they're going to go yeah the bedroom right. And I know it's like forty six or forty seven percent or whatever right. But you know why do we check the hallways? Why do we check staircase staircases? Why do we check paths of egress underneath windows because that's where people are being found in abundance. So we have to focus on those. And I think the fire service will become more driven and focused on that. They'll, they'll understand, like we already know, right? That, um, uh, you know, flowing water inside of a building 
right? We already kind of knew like, man, it feels better when we're flowing in here, right? And then when UL came along, they said, man, when you flow and you start to move, here's what happens scientifically. So this is the benefit to it, right? Um, and I think we're going to start to see a lot more of that. I think we're going to see tactics that are not not purely data driven, but are are like hyper focused on that on that data and the outcome and the result. And I think that will probably be um, probably the 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 uh, that would be the direction maybe I would want it to go. I think that it, I think it clearly kind of is, you know, you look at departments, I look at my own, organ, my own organization from in 20 years that the, we've come light years, you know? Yeah, no, good points on that. I think sometimes I like how you approach that when you looked back 10 to 15 years before you answered this and be like, well, I, I we wouldn't have thought about podcasts. We wouldn't have thought about, uh, we probably, you know, and I'm, I'm going to put some words in your mouth, but we probably wouldn't have seen a million small conferences pop up all across the country. Never. And, and we wouldn't have seen, you know, the, the proliferation of fools organizations and, and the like, and, and nuggets chapters and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and so to answer the, the question of, of what's next, like, let's go back 10 to 15 years and, and see where, see if we could have predicted any of this. And then can we predict what's, what's next? So I, I appreciate how you approach that, that question. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think it'll be interesting, you know, to see where we are and what it looks like, you know, I mean, I have maybe, maybe uh, 10, 10, uh, 10, 12 years left in the fire service at the most, you know, so um, it'll be interesting to see what it looks like when I'm, when I'm walking out the door. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Well, we'll start wrapping up here. We've been going a little bit longer than, than, uh, than, than sometimes we do, although that's not atypical for us either. Um, but we've got a handful of rapid fire questions. Okay. Um, and these don't have to be fire related at all. Okay. Um, but what's the best, I, I the first one probably will be, but what's the best conference you've ever been to? The best conference I've ever yeah. been to? Oh man. Um, well, you know, I think that it just kind of depends on on what you're trying to get out of. For me, one of the, the best conference I've ever been to, um, you know, I certainly love uh, the the Portland conference and uh, firemanship with Cody and uh, on twofold is I think that the training is, uh, you know, the stuff that's offered there is awesome. I think that the, um, I think the, uh, the, the speakers and the the education, the, the information is always, no matter what you're looking for, you're probably gonna be able to find it, you know? Um, but I also like the fact that, you know, he's donating money to taking all that money. I mean, he could get rich off that truly, you know, right. He's taking all that money and he's giving it to, to people to help out. It says a lot about him and his character and, and, and whatnot. So I always think like, that's probably my, um, you know, my favorite conference and, and the fact that I, it, it's typically the conference that I get to see almost everybody from the fire service that I, you know, that we talk on, like we see each other on Skype and on uh, Zoom and on and talking and, and on online and whatnot, but that's where we see each other face to face. And that's probably in that regard, that's probably one of my favorites. Um, to me personally, you know, the Mile High Conference, because it's in our own backyard, it's put on by guys who they take all that money and they donate that to the Terry Farrell Fund of Colorado, which helps out firefighters. Um, so I think that that one is kind of fun because it's like you know it's personal for me because growing up in the fire service here we had nothing like we had no conferences we had no classes you know they started doing fire nuggets classes in denver in like boy i don't know it's probably you know 15 16 years ago you know and that kind of fizzled out and so um 
this there's guys that just said we're going to bring this great training here to you know to uh to this region and um so from that regard i think that that's that's kind of like personally for me it's always kind of fun to be uh to be a part of but i think the best class in the country right hands down that has changed the shape of this of our industry um if i were going to say the best class i would tell you i think it's nozzle forward and it has completely redefined and reshaped the way that organizationally my department puts out fires um it's it's added an extra like an edge to it almost and it's just unbelievable how simple it is you know but um to me that's that's been like my favorite class because it changed my organization so would you and and i love all those answers and um Mile High, PDX, uh, Nozzle Forward have all been mentioned before. So I think that speaks a lot to how amazing those classes or conferences are. I want to take just a slightly different approach to this class uh, question. So Nozzle Forward, amazing class. If you are a new firefighter, what's the best class to go to? And let's say you're a 20-year guy or girl. What's the best class to go to? And is there a difference? Is, is the answer nozzle forward to both those? Yeah, it is. I mean, and, and here's why, because, you know, I, I tell you what, we hear that saying as the first line goes, so does the fire, right? Um, that became abundantly clear to me on a fire about two weeks ago, right? The first line did not get advanced to the seat quickly. And there was, there was really kind of almost a comedy of errors why it didn't. It wasn't, didn't rest on one single individual or anything like that. But to me, it just reinforced that. And I, I feel like afterwards, you know, we're sitting around the command post and, and, um, um, you know, the, the, my battalion chief was like, Hey, you know, like, uh, so what, what do you think? And about all this stuff. And, and, um, there was almost this level of disappointment from the, uh, from the, from not my chief specifically, but like, just like a level of disappointment on the fire ground. Right. And I sat there and I was kind of listening to all these other guys, the other company officers talk. And what dawned on me in that moment was like, this would not have been a disappointing fire 15 years ago, right? There's a different standard that has been set for everybody in our organization, whether you're brand new, cause you go through a, I never say you go through nozzle forward in, um, in, you know, my, um, like we don't have nozzle forward in my academy because it's, it's, it's all nozzle forward stuff, but it's not taught by, by Aaron. And I, I don't, I don't, I don't ever tell people you've been through nozzle forward now, you, you know? Um, but to me, just in that moment, sitting around that command post, I remember being like, you know, the funny thing is like, this would have been a high five fire 15 years ago, 16 years ago, maybe not a high five fire, but it wouldn't have been as like, I mean, like both chiefs were kind of like, Hey, that was kind of effed. What the heck happened? You know? And I recognized that like our standard was, was had moved so far up um, from where it was that when we dropped below it and we did drop below it, right. When we dropped below it, that there was almost this, like your parents were disappointed in you. And honestly, that made me feel good afterwards. I was like, well, good. You know, it's the exception that proves the rule, right. That we are doing it right. And honestly, uh, nozzle forward changed that for, for our organization. 
Okay. Uh, what's the best book you've ever read? <laughs> you can ask me. All right. Besides Nozzle Forward, Lynch, what's the? I, best? I love Nozzle Forward. I think the first <laughs> yeah. time I ever took it too was at Springs, um, yeah. back in 2013 at the Firefighters of the Rockies Symposium. Yes. So yeah, that was. Um, and then we brought Aaron back out, um, and that was like the third time I think I had taught. I had taken his class. Um, and then, and after that symposium, actually in 2013, 12 or 13, um, or maybe was it at, uh, was it at, um, you know, tower. Okay. Uh, That was, I think that was the year that we brought a bunch of people from our department to instruct on, um, or to not instruct, I'm sorry, to like, almost like a train, like get all this stuff. We're going to put together a program for our own organization based off of, of nozzle forward. So um, that was probably that, that was probably that same year if it was at our tower. Yeah, I think the first day was at like a, I forget where we did the lectures, but I think it was, I kind of forget, but I think the, we actually did the first day of, of hot at like a parking ramp. And then yeah. the second day was at your tower. Uh, we did the first day was at um, Pikes Peak Community College. And okay. then it was at a, um, um like an abandoned uh they were they had uh started building a you know like a strip mall and like a movie theater or something yeah and, um had a parking garage for it and then they you know uh construction on that uh project stopped so they just had this wide open and that's where we were doing the parking garage right and then the second day was at the tower i do remember correct that. yeah yeah man that's a long that was like almost 10 years ago yeah right man that's crazy but yeah. Um, all right. So circling back to book, what's the best, best, excuse me, best book you've ever read? Oh man. Best book I've ever read. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of into, uh, I'm, I love true crime stuff. Um, I, I'm a, I'm kind of a junk. I think I get that from my mom. My mom loved true crime <laughs> stuff. So I love that true crime stuff. I love crime shows, like real shows, not like, uh, you know, like, uh, TV shows, like, uh, yeah. Like you know, documentaries. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm, um, was mom watching Dateline every night? Yeah, I think that's what it was. I, I watch Dateline all the time, man. I love it. Um, I don't know the best book, probably the best fire service book. Uh, something sticks with me is, is report from engine company 82. Uh, I just think it's such a cool historical, uh, kind of benchmark in, in the, in the fire service. And, you know, for a, especially a city that was doing it, you know, like in, in New York city, like nobody else back in the day, really. And just a very interesting perspective. Um, I love that. Uh, I love that book. Uh, probably the most recent book I read that I think uh, I read a book called never split the difference. Um, and it was, um, I can't even think of the author's name now, but um, he was a um, retired FBI negotiator. Um, and he just talked about negotiating and um, kind of how you should go about negotiating, not just not, you know, like a cutthroat negotiation, but just how you can kind of, you know, control, uh, control the narrative in scenarios and situations and how you can, um, you know, basically bargain and uh, without bargaining, you know, and kind of getting your way. And I, that sounds very selfish and that's not really what it means, but it, it, it was a very interesting book to talk about how he would, you know, he'd be talking these, these, uh, he would always start every chapter with a different hostage negotiation that he was involved in, you know, and it was just fascinating the way that he was able to, you know, this guy's demanding $20 million and they talk him down to like, 
15 bucks in a gas station hot dog, you know, and he releases <laughs> these hostages. You're like, man, it's kind of amazing. Just the power of the psyche and, and motivation and how to do certain things. So that was probably the coolest book I've read recently. I don't know that I have a favorite book. I read nah, so fair stuff, enough. you know, I like that. I'm going to, I wrote that down. Never split the difference. I'm going to have to look. Yeah, I, uh, I, uh, yeah. If you, if you Google, I can Google it real quick and find the, um, find the author author of it. Yeah. But he's, um, it's, it was pretty, uh, pretty phenomenal. Um, let me see here. Now, Christopher Voss, V-O-S-S. Yeah. All right. I'm looking it up on, yeah, I'm looking I, up on the internet as soon as we get off, off here. Honestly, such an easy read too. It's not like an 800, 900 page book. It's, you know, Two two fifty three hundred pages. Something's pretty good. Yeah, it gets intimidating when you look at a book and it's like four hundred and fifty pages. You're like, eh, yeah, no pictures. You're like, man, that's this gonna is- take me all summer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. Uh, lastly, lastly, what podcast do we need to be listening to? Well, um, one of the podcasts I started to we kind of talked about before, but um, buddy of mine that I work with, John Roy, he's a uh, he's a, a firefighter, he's an irons and ladders instructor. He's a driver on our job. Um, and, um, he does a, pa- a podcast called the mentor podcast, um, him and, and, um, a guy named John Herrera. But, uh, I, you know, I've known John for, uh, man, but he's been on the job by 10, 10, 11 years. I've known him for a while. And, and, um, he's just, uh, he's a funny guy. I never, uh, uh, and he's always been somebody to me that is, um, you know, he's kind of a natural leader, a very informal leader. And, uh, when I saw he was doing this podcast, um, I started listening to it a little bit and it's focused on some of his, his uh, jujitsu stuff and whatnot, but, um, it's really something that I think that when you look at mentorship and you look at, um, leadership, you look at maybe followership to a certain extent, um, it, um, it has lessons that apply to not only the fire service, but life. So it's kind of a, kind of a decent one, not a fire podcast, but um, you know, it's a good one. So, and I'll put a link to it on my uh, Facebook page, actually. Perfect. I got to imagine too, uh, that, that, that mentor podcast, even though it's not like explicitly about the fire service, you know, there's sometimes you'll read a book or you'll hear something that has nothing to do with the fire service, but still has everything to do with the fire service. I got to imagine there's, there's some of that going on in that podcast. Oh yeah. Just by by the name itself. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be a, I mean, yeah, I, I can't imagine that the, for me, everything kind of blends in, right. As, as even, even when you want to turn it off, you look and go, man, uh, as a firefighter, you may learn a lesson outside of the fire service that has nothing to do with it, but somehow, some way in your life, you're going to be able to apply it to, to your work. I think that that's probably pretty natural for, for most of us. Right. Yeah. I think sometimes what we talked about earlier that like looking up and looking out outside of your organization, also like looking up and looking out outside of your bubble, like don't even look in the fire service at, at times, look to see what the best of the best at, you know, in, in special forces are doing or, or business or psychology or, you know, sport or whatever. I think we can learn a lot from, from so many other domains. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so much for your time, my man. Is there anything else you want to say before we kind of sign off? 
No, I really appreciate it. It's always good. It's good to be back going, doing, going to some trainings now and like actually getting back together. I know after COVID, it was a long time. It felt kind of weird getting back together. After, uh, you know, it's, it seemed like it was, it's like what, see, running into an ex-girlfriend after, you know, a year ago. <laughs> oh man, I don't know if I like you, uh, <laughs> but it's, I've been awesome just getting back and like, you know, we did the high plains conference, the mile high conference and, and, you know, all the class and class requests and things that we're getting now. It's just, it's really cool to get back together with uh, and be around, around other firefighters again. And, you know, I can, the, the, um, I don't know, just the, the fellowship, I guess, that's involved in that. So looking forward to, to more of that, hopefully. Yeah, I, I think we all had a little COVID fatigue and, and we're all pretty hungry and thirsty for, for kind of uh, the old normal. Yeah, it's <laughs> a good way to put it. Well, thank you so much, my man. I really appreciate your time here. Thank you.